So we're going to continue on in our study of Proverbs. And as I indicated last week, I think it's probably um, at least certainly one of the more um, effective ways that I've come across and have been, it's been a blessing and an encouragement to me in looking at the, the book of Proverbs is to, is to begin to break the book down into uh, various subjects or categories of focus or emphasis. Um, we've been sort of walking through the first six chapters and really um, looking at it, not so much verse by verse expositionally, but just sort of the, the, the ideas that are being presented um, in each of the key sections of the first six chapters. And so today we're going to kind of veer off and really start looking at categories or, or subjects that are sort of prominent throughout the, the book of Proverbs in various ways, and, and really just look at what the, the Proverbs, various Proverbs are, are teaching in the way of wisdom as it relates to these various categories. And today I'd like to start with, um, and, and by the way, I'll have to tell you out, out at the outset, uh, I'm relying fairly heavily on uh, Derek Kidner, who wrote a very small sort of commentary, if you will. It's not a, it's not a really you know, thick, heavy, technical, uh, or, or um, academic-type commentary. It's a very practical commentary. It's really more of a, of a study of Proverbs, and he uses this, this way of, of approaching it, too. And I've found his, his approach and some of his methods for outlining certain ideas or certain categories to be very helpful. So I just want to let you know that I'm, I'm leaning pretty heavily on this particular uh, writer uh, for, for some of the content of our study. And today, uh, I want to talk about wisdom and words. That's one of the categories that Kidner uh, identifies and focuses in on, this idea of, of words uh, as it plays out in in the book of Proverbs. And by way of introduction, let me just read to you this article that I came across as I was thinking about this and, and trying to do some study on it. There is a, an article that really is a, a summary of a study that was done. Uh, the title of the article is Language Can Reveal the Invisible, Language Can Reveal the Invisible Study Shows. And here's what it says. It is natural to imagine that the sense of sight takes in the world as it is simply passing on what the eyes collect from light reflected by the objects around us. But the eyes do not work alone. What we see is a function not only of incoming visual information, but also how that information is interpreted in light of other visual experiences and may even be influenced by language. Words can play a powerful role in uh, what we see, according to a study published this month, by University of Wisconsin-Madison cognitive scientist and psychology professor Gary Lupien and Emily Ward, a Yale University graduate student in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Perceptual systems do the best they can with inherently ambiguous inputs by putting them in context of what we know and what we expect, Lupien says. Studies like this are helping us show that language is a powerful tool for shaping perceptual systems acting as a top-down signal to perceptual processes. In the case of vision, what we consciously perceive seems to be deeply shaped by our knowledge and expectations. And those expectations can be altered with a single word. To show how deeply words can influence perception, Lupien and Ward use a technique called continuous flash suppression to render a series of objects invisible for a group of volunteers. Each person was shown a picture of a familiar object, such as a chair or a pumpkin or a kangaroo, in one eye. 
At the same time, their other eye saw a series of flashing, squiggly lines. Now, can you imagine being wired up to this experiment? you got one eye that's being shown this very common images, and the other eye, you're being flashed with these squiggly lines. And then one quote is, Essentially, it's visual noise, Lupkin says, because the noise patterns are high contrast and constantly moving. They dominate, and the input from the other eye is suppressed. Immediately before looking at the combination of the flashing lines and the suppressed object, the study participants heard one of three things. The word for the suppressed object, so pumpkin, when the object was pumpkin. Or the word for a different object, such as kangaroo, when the word, when the word that they showed was actually pumpkin. Or just static. So they're hearing prior to the image flashing and the squiggly lines being shown in the other eye, either the actual word of the object that they're going to see in one eye, or a different word than the object they're going to see in one one eye, or they just heard white noise. They just heard static. Then researchers asked the participants to indicate whether they saw something or not. When the word they heard matched the object that was being wiped out by the visual noise, the subjects were more likely to report that they did indeed see something than in cases where the wrong word or no word at all was paired with the image. Hearing the word for the object that was being suppressed boosted that object into their vision, Lupian says. And hearing an unmatched word actually hurt study subjects' chances of, of seeing the object. With, label, with the label, you're expecting pumpkin-shaped things, Lupian says. Lupian says. When you get a visual input consistent with that expectation, it boosts it into perception. When you get an incorrect label, it further suppresses that. Experiments have shown that continuous flash suppression interrupts sight so thoroughly that there are no signals in the brain to suggest the invisible objects are perceived even implicitly. Unless they can tell us they saw it, there is nothing to suggest the brain was taking it all in, Lupian says. If language affects performance on a test like this, it indicates that language is influencing vision at a pretty early stage. It's getting really deep into the visual system. The study demonstrates a deeper connection between language and simple sensory perception than previously thought, and one that makes Lupian wonder about the extent of language's power. The influence of language may extend to other senses as well. A lot of previous work, he says, uh, has focused on vision, and we have neglected to examine the role of knowledge and expectations on other modalities, especially smell and taste. What I want to see, Lupian says, is whether we can really alter threshold abilities. Does expecting a particular taste, for example, allow you to detect a a substance at a lower concentration? He says if you're drinking a glass of milk but thinking about orange juice, that may change the way you experience milk. Now, have you ever ever thought you were about to take a drink of something? Like in your mind, it was that something, and you take a drink of it, and it's something altogether different? It totally changes your... you, You may like the something the other something that's in there. So, for example, let's say that you think you're going to take a drink of an ice-cold glass of milk, but you end up taking a drink of, you know, warm spiced tea or something. And you like warm spiced tea, but because you thought it was milk and you had it in your mind that it was milk, it affects your taste of the spiced tea to where you're like, ugh, right? That's kind of what he's saying. He's wondering how, how, what extent that effect might be. There's no point in figuring out what some objective taste is, Lupian says. What is important is whether the milk is spoiled or not. If you expect it to be orange juice and it tastes like orange juice, it's fine. But if you expect it to be milk, you'd think something was wrong. So this study 
actually points to this principle. And it reminds me of that famous quote um, by this renowned astrophysicist and NASA scientist, Robert Jastrow. He said this in his book, God and Astronomers. He was really primarily speaking to the... He, he was, he was um, around at the onset of a lot of the Big Bang theory as it was emerging in science. And, you know, this, this discovery that the Earth was created in an instant, right? It had an instantaneous effect by, by, from a power that's really undiscernible. It's unknowable, in a sense. He says, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been since sitting there for centuries. So this study kind of shows what we know already and what Proverbs actually speaks to, what Scripture actually tells us. And that is that words are powerful. Words influence. Words shape thought and ultimately shape behavior and reaction. In fact, when you think of Psalm 119.105, a very simple, beloved passage, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Why, how do you think that correlates to this study? What is that passage really talking about? It's talking about how God's word gives us insight. It's not talking about a physical light, of course, right? It's not talking about physical illumination so that we can see our way clear. It's talking about how God's word gives us perception. It shapes perception around what is true and accurate so that we can walk on a path that is straight and safe and secure. So we know this from Scripture. We know this to be true. But Proverbs is replete with wisdom about words and their power, their effect. Kidner, in his little outline, he talks about the power of words. He talks about the weakness of words. And then he talks about words at their best. So what's the best that words can accomplish? So today, I'd like to spend most of our time, if not all of it, just talking about the power of words and looking at some passages from Proverbs that really speak to that. If we go back and think about what we studied in Proverbs chapter 6, in that section that talks about the seven abominations that the Lord hates, the Lord despises, at least three of them, and I might even argue four, are examples of the misuse of words. Proverbs 6, 16-19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And then the first one He lists is haughty eyes. But then the second one is a lying tongue. So there's your first reference to words. The, second one, the next thing is a hand that sheds, hands that shed innocent blood. But then you have, verse 18, a heart that devises wicked plans. And this is the one that I would argue has, is attached to words. You can't devise plans without there being language or words associated with those plans, right? Feet that make haste. You don't share them. But there's, you're, you're, you're thinking them. Yeah, but we're going to talk about that. Words are, you can, we're, we're, we'll talk about that in just a second. We're talking about the effect of words that are tied to both inward and outward effect. So this is an example of, you, you think that you can you devise plans without there being words associated with it? Yeah, let's go back to the caveman. He didn't have a language, but he conceived of things. Okay. I, <laughs> 
Yeah, but, okay, well, I don't want to get into that whole kind of debate, but the fact of the matter is, is that words, do you think that this is speaking of cavemen? I don't, I mean, this is about people who are actually devising words, right? Okay, so I, we're going to get into a debate. We can talk about it later, but I would, I would argue that. I mean, I would, I would say that that's not possible, and you can't necessarily even measure that. But we, we'll talk I about that. I would say that idea, an idea is different than a plan. A plan is more formulated. Right. Well, and the other thing, too, is that, well, we're going to get into a whole okay. you know, study of linguistics, which is not really what I, I want to do today. But, but the fact of the matter is, is that you can't, you can't get away from the importance of words in, in affecting uh, or being in, implicated here in, in this passage of things that the Lord hates. You also have verse 19, a false witness who breathes out lies. And then the, ne- the last one, one who sows discord among brothers, which would also imply the sowing of discord with, with words. So the bottom line is that words are powerful and words are used in a variety of ways, and Proverbs deals with them from the standpoint of what they produce, good and bad. So the, the, it, it's not necessarily focused on just bad or good. It's focused on both. Proverbs 18.21 kind of points out this power of words, and it says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So it's giving this image of, of or metaphor of life and death and how that is, lies in the power of the words that we speak. Now, Kidner breaks this down into the penetration of words and the spread of words as two ways to think about this power that that lie in the words that we think or speak. In the first section, he talks about the penetration of words. So, in other words, he's talking about what is, he, he draws this distinction between what is done to you and how that is of little account compared to what happens in you or what is done in you. And he's driving home the point that words have an effect internally. They can affect us internally. You can have someone do something to you externally. An example might be if you, if you got, you know, someone ran into you really aggressively in the hallway or something, and it kind of shakes you up physically, it might affect you for a moment. But if you're walking in that same hallway and someone says something to you very, very offensive or very, very cutting or very, very humiliating or very, very disrespectful, it could kind of, you could walk with that for a long time. It has an, he's talking about the penetration of words and its effect on us internally. He, saw, he, said, he talks about how the impact that words can have within us as they penetrate our hearts and they begin to shape our thinking or they stir our emotions or they may even produce wonderful things as they penetrate our hearts and our minds. They also can produce bad and destructive things. So the point is is that words, when they penetrate to the inside, can have a profound effect for either ill or good. And Proverbs addresses that. Proverbs 12, 18, for example. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And think about that simple proverb. Have you ever had someone say something to you that was the emotional, internal equivalent of sword thrusts? Or maybe even worse, 
Have you spoken words to someone else only to find that it was like sword thrusts into, into their physical body? So that, that image is apropos. It gives us a, a clear indication that what we're talking about is something that has tremendous power. Kidner says this, the feelings or morale may be lacerated by a cruel or clumsy thrust and a, quote, wounded spirit who can bear, Proverbs 18, 14. In other words, the words that we speak can cause such harm that it's like the physical blows, the physical thrust of a sword, so much so that it has a wounding effect to the spirit, so much so that it would cause someone to say, I can't bear it. I mean, it, it could produce a level of despair even. I mean, think about the power of words to produce in someone something to the extent of despair. I can't bear this any longer. Words spoken. On the other hand, he says, equally, they may be vitalized by a timely word and the whole body with them. So just like this passage in Proverbs 12, 18 says that, you know, converse to the sword thrusts of rash words, the tongue of the wise brings healing. You also have Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. So this recognition that that the penetration of words is powerful and that the words that we speak and that the words that we ultimately internalize and think about can either be words that produce healing or words that produce pain and anguish and despair. There's power there that's profound on its internal, in its internal effect. Our attitudes can also be shaped. Just our general attitudes can be shaped by words. Proverbs 18.8 talks of whispers. So our attitudes or our opinions of others can be shaped by the whispers we hear from someone about someone else. Proverbs 18.8, the words of a whisper are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. This is an implication of, of basically the whisperer is someone who is like a gossip, someone who is seeking to you know, influence through a secret communication. And usually it's a, oriented toward a potential slander or just influencing the attitude some of, some of us might have toward others by dropping these little insinuations in, in the form of a whisper. And we can have our attitudes shaped by it. I mean, I've been guilty of this. I've, I've had my opinions pre-shaped about another person, another human being, based upon th- something I've heard about them before I even have a conversation with them, before I even engage them to know what, what they're like, truly, what their temperament is, what their values are, who they love, what they care about, what their interests are. I mean, I just before even taking an initial step there, I step into that first conversation with a preconceived notion because I've listened to a whisper, and it's sunk down deep. And so now I've got this profile in my mind of who this person is before a first interaction takes place. That's powerful. That's a powerful influence on us. Our view of ourselves can be inflated by flattery, right? Words. We can start to think more of ourselves than we really ought, or even that's probably really actually true. 
I mean, is it not in fact the case that who we are in, in its full-orbed wonder is not necessarily what we're presenting to the people who would, who would flatter us and make us feel like we're awesome. Just think of parenting. I was telling someone this the other day. You know, I, just, I came across, uh, I just in the last few weeks, I came across you know, some birthday notes from my son. And he's 15 years old and um, typical 15-year-old. I mean, we have a, a good relationship. But when I read that letter, I'm like, he just didn't know me as well as he knows me now because he thought I was super, I mean, he thought I was an absolute rock star. That letter was just this fawning flattery of, of, of just, you know, overwhelming praise of how awesome I was as his dad. But now he knows me a little bit more. He's a little smarter and wiser, and he knows that I'm, you know, I'm not so awesome as that letter would have indicated, right? But we can think more highly of ourselves. Our attitudes can be shaped by flattery. Proverbs 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. In other words, it can be a trap. Flattery which entangles its victim by the cravings it induces and by the ill-judged actions it invites, says Kidner. So we have to understand that words of flattery, even, even though they feel good and, and they might be appropriate to a degree in terms of compliment, if we take those in and carry them too deeply and begin to think that we're something that we're not, that's a trap. It's like a net has been spread for us. Yes? I just real quick, I had a quote from Alex Jabay. I don't know if you want to come up with it, but he said, flattery is like perfume. It's meant to be sniffed, not swallowed. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I've heard him say it several times. It always makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kidner kind of concludes this section on the penetration of words and their power. He says, above all, beliefs and convictions are formed by words, and these either destroy a man or are the making of him. For example, Proverbs eleven nine, with his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. And then Proverbs 10, 21 to 20, excuse me, it's Proverbs 10, 20 to 21, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver, the heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. So in other words, it's words that can shape our internal convictions, our beliefs that ultimately affect who we are, ultimately affect what our influence is with people, for good or for bad. Well, he also talks about the spread of words. So that, that, that deals with sort of the words and their impact on us internally for good or for bad. This is just a, a, a sampling of some Proverbs that deal with this. But there's also the impact of the spread of words. He says, since words implant ideas in other minds, their effects spread for good or for evil. And I think this is probably where we would think more practically about words. Maybe we would go to that, that way of thinking more easily or more naturally when we think about words because when we're thinking about words, we're thinking often about spoken words, right? I mean, that's kind of where I think our minds naturally go, words that we actually utter. We don't necessarily think about words as those things that we are taking in or that we're actually thinking about, meditating upon, holding on to, using to bolster an opinion of ourselves, whatever it might be. But the spread of words is really what we say out loud, 
how we use words or, or what, we, what we write. I mean, the, you know, the communicated word. Um, words that, that shape other people's thinking, that influence other people to think a certain way, that, that define things, that, that give people a sense of what they should or shouldn't do or who they should or shouldn't be. And so for evil purposes or for evil effect, you could look at Proverbs chapter 16, verses 27 to 28. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. There's that whisperer again, same kind of reference there. A whisperer separates close friends. So this is the image of a person whose words are plotting evil, who are really, the effect is like a scorching fire. It's sort of an echo of what you hear in James about the tongue being a fire. And, but also, the whisperer again, the one who would use those subtle innuendo type words to separate close friends, to bring damage to a close relationship with the spread of, of evil words or erroneous words. And then for the good, words that are spread and have a good effect. Proverbs 10, chapter, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. So in other words, the words that the righteous speak, that they communicate, it's, it brings life. It's life-giving speech. It's life-giving communication. Again, all under this heading of the power of words. That's a sobering reality for us, right? I mean, it's one thing for us to think about our words, especially if they're possibly insulting or less than considerate or unkind and being hurtful. I mean, we can make that connection. We've had relational conflict where we've, you know, we've lost our temper or we've spoken rashly and our words have hurt someone and we recognize them. We see that. We can, we can really relate to that. But do we ever think about how our words can give life? They have a life-giving effect. They, they, they produce in someone a sense of vitality, of enthusiasm, of encouragement, of hope, of purpose, life-giving words that the righteous can speak. And that's a sobering opportunity and responsibility at the same time, isn't it? So you have the, the internalization of words, and you have the spread of words, just some samples from Proverbs. We're going to talk about this quite a bit more as we continue on in our study of, of words and wisdom. But let's just think about this in some examples. Think of the power of words, both in its penetration into the heart and mind of someone, as well as into its spread, the spread of words of a certain type, and how it can have an ill effect. Who's familiar with the word of faith movement? Let me just talk about it a little bit. This, it's interesting that this word of faith movement centers on words and the power of words, but it corrupts scripture and corrupts theology and doctrine to manipulate using words under the rubric of a, a version of Christianity, if you will. At the heart of this word-faith movement is the belief in the force of faith, it's called. It is believed that words can be used to manipulate the faith force. 
and thus actually create what they believe Scripture promises, which is health and wealth. This is kind of the name it and claim it. You know, that's the more simplistic way to, to view it. It's this name it and claim it kind of theology. Laws supposedly governing the faith force are said to operate independently of God's sovereign will and that God himself is subject to these laws. And this writer talks about how this is nothing short of idolatry, turning our faith by extension uh, and, and by extension ourselves into God's. And they actually believe that we are a form of a, a small God. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. And this is all done under the guise of Christian witness. Okay? But the word faith movement grew out of the Pentecostal movement in the late 20th century. Its founder was E.W. Kenyon, who studied the metaphysical new thought teachings of Phineas Quimby. Mind science, where name it and claim it originated, was combined with Pentecostalism, resulting in a peculiar mix of Orthodox Christianity and mysticism. And well-known personalities such as Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Robert Tilton, Benny Hinn, Marilyn Hickey, Frederick Price, John Avanzini, Charles Capps, Jerry Savelle, Morris Carrillo, and others. Paul and Jan Crouch of the TBN network. All were, have been instrumental in the spread of this, this doctrine, this really this erroneous false doctrine. But in short, it's basically taking, what they do is they take the actual word of God, actual scriptures, and they pull them out of context, and they use them to utterly manipulate people into thinking that this authoritative word from God's word is what you can use to create an ultimate reality that is, fa- that is wealth and healing, health, prosperity, literally. That Christians, if they utilized words and tapped in to this this force of faith, and they exercise these words of Scripture in the right way, they would then produce a reality that is almost exclusively centered around temporal benefit of money and physical health. And it's not veiled, it's not hidden, it's not, it's not covert in any way. That's explicitly what is communicated. The saddest reality of all this is that this kind of theology preys on the most vulnerable. It preys upon people who are desperate, who have a sense of hopelessness in this world and in this life, people who are in poverty. In fact, uh, Shane would probably be someone great to talk to because the spread of this on the continent of Africa is, is a huge bane for those who are seeking to preach the word of God faithfully. Uh, Mark Nandino would be another good one to talk about. Th- this, this particular use, or I should say misuse of words, and actually misusing and abusing the words of Scripture to create such a massive ill effect. I mean, I'm, we're talking on a scale of millions upon millions of people, this ill effect of words, of people in the name of Christ, in the name of gospel proclamation, using words powerfully, absolutely powerfully, but to tremendous destructive ill effect. Is this all the faith movement that we're still talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sad. 
you'll see massive auditoriums and open-air arenas filled with people and giving you know, their last $2 because they want to tap into this, this faith channel, if you will. And the way that they, one way that they tap into it is by making a, making a vow. It's, it's, really a, it's really a toxic, deadly heresy. But it has sweeping effect. It's spread exponentially around the world. But its roots are in this merging of godless mysticism. It's really sad. Well, let's just use scripture to think about the power of words in their penetration and in their spread with good effect. Psalm 19. I'm going to read Psalm 19, and I want us to just think about this wonderful psalm as it talks about the Word of God appropriately understood, appropriately revered, effectively and consistently considered and applied to one's life. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from his heat, from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is, pure, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And what a contrast just meditating on Psalm 19 gives us to using words even words of scripture, to manipulate and to twist for selfish gain and for some purpose other than the glory of God and the righteous sanctification of his people, like this psalm speaks of. So as we think about the power of words, I think it's important for us to consider the fact that, as we've quoted before, where there's an abundance of words, sin is not lacking. That we are people who spend a lot of time in communication, talking, writing emails, writing texts, 
There's a lot of words that we utter in some form or fashion. And I think we would do well to recognize, as Proverbs emphasizes, that our words are powerful things. And they can produce life. They can produce healing. They can produce a level of encouragement that brings hope to people. Or they can be utterly destructive. And the words that we contemplate, that we think about, the words that shape our thinking about people or about our circumstances or about our future can be life-giving as well or they can be devastatingly harmful. Over and over again, when I find myself in some kind of counseling scenario, um, not necessarily a formal counseling scenario, but just I'm involved in a, in a conversation with someone, and clearly they're struggling profoundly in a particular area. And there's probably you know some sense of hopelessness. There's a sense of you know nothing's going to change. There's a sense of being bound by the circumstances that they're in. And without fail, what what you discover in those kinds of encounters and those kinds of discussions is that this person is communicating to themselves over and over and over again words that are not true. They're speaking to themselves things that are not actually true. They're convincing themselves of things that are not based in the truth of who God is. They're not based in the clarity of his promises. They have basically taken words of their own making or of influence by other people, hurtful things, whatever it might be, and are rehearsing them over and over again, and it's beginning to shape their whole life, their outlook, their sense of hope for the future, how they're going to get through a particular circumstance, can they endure such pain, all these different things. It's based upon largely how they're communicating internally to themselves, whether it's based upon truth or whether it's based upon error. And I would advocate that one of the blessings that we have in our church is our focus on the Scriptures, verse by verse, week by week, knowing and understanding God's Word, internalizing it, thinking about it so that we can practice it, So God help us to make sure that our words are oriented toward giving life and not bringing death, giving hope and not engendering despair. Any final thoughts before I make a few announcements and then we're dismissed? We have to kind of leave um, a little bit early for pictures.